Roberta Blevins, and this is Life After MLM, a podcast where we work to end the stigma of failure in an industry systemically designed for you to fail. Join us as we dive into the real-life stories of survivors, experts, and advocates as we debunk the common myths and fallacies of cults, frauds, scams, and multi-level marketing. Hey, Hunbots and Hunros, we have an exciting episode for you today and an exciting week that's coming up. Not only is today the Super Bowl and, you know, ever since the Spanos family moved the Chargers to Los Angeles, I have been a free agent fan. And so when my girl has her boy in the big game, I'm just going to have to say, go Taylor's boyfriend's team, because, you know, I don't really care about football. I'm sorry. I care about the snacks and the commercials, and I'm, I'm excited for the Usher show. And I'm excited for just the overall fun of the game. But not only do we have the Super Bowl, we have Valentine's Day coming up. And so that's why I decided to publish this episode this week. And we will also have a bonus episode on Valentine's Day, which happens to fall on a Wednesday, with some romance scam stories from not only the internet, but from our listeners too. This episode has been in the making for a while, specifically since Russ Nielsen reached out to me and said, you have to talk to this person. The similarities are wild. And so I reached out and here we are. We are talking to Love is Blind season two contestant Nick Thompson today about his time on the show, the connections to the culty universe and what he is doing to change that. It is a great episode. I'm really excited for it. And I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did not only having the conversation, but editing it back and listening to it again. I also want to say thank you to our newest Patreon members, Eliana Friedman, Curtis Waldron and Sandy Rusk. Your support is so important, and I just want to say thank you so much for spending some time with us over there. Don't forget that we go live every Monday morning. We talk about what's going on in the MLM and the cult world. We just have a really good time. We have some friends and some guests that stop by sometimes as well. And I know that I plug it a lot, but I'm telling you, it is really fun. If you guys like Discord, if you like kind of hanging out, chatting, having a good time, we had a hilarious time the other night just hanging out on discord trolling Mallory it was it was so funny and there was only a few of us there but the few of us that were there know and it was so funny that's the kind of stuff you're missing out on <laughs> the discord and our watch parties so check it out the links to join all of the extracurricular activities of life after MLM are in the show notes 
You're going to love this episode as I teach Nick Thompson about the bite model. Enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of Life After MLM. This is a topic I've been wanting to talk about for a long time. It comes up often. And also, I have a listener who's listening right now, Russ, who has been on me about connecting with our guest today. When I talked to our guest, I also found out that his followers had been urging him to connect with me. So I'm really excited to talk today about the cult of reality television with my guest, Nick Thompson. Hey, how are you? Hey, I'm doing good. I'm glad we finally were able to do this. Um, I know. I wonder, I got to go back and look and see if Russ has been messaging me too. It's It was mostly on TikTok, which I don't go on very often. And if I see like more than two messages, I get overwhelmed and get off right away. So <laughs> Same. <laughs> if I get enough notifications that are like, somebody commented, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to go check that right now. Yeah. <laughs> like, seems a little much. It is. It really is. The best thing I've ever done is turn off notifications on Instagram and TikTok. So it's on my time. Like I go in there when I want to, when I have time. But sometimes with TikTok, I try to post and ghost a little on TikTok because it's so addictive. I know it's very addictive. I'm already spend too much time on Instagram, you know, laughing at reels and stuff. The last thing I need to do is go on TikTok and start doing that until three in the morning. <laughs> yeah, I have it all like set up in my scheduled summary on my phone. So I think I get like two notifications a day. It's like, that's this smart. is everything that happened. And I'm like, that's a lot of notifications, clear notifications. <laughs> that could get very overwhelming. Very overwhelming. I just like, I just hit clear and I'm like, oh, no more <laughs> notifications. That's great. So for anybody who's listening and doesn't know who you are, it's possible that they maybe have never seen the reality show Love is Blind. Love is Blind came out in 2020 during the pandemic. That is when I started watching it when I was stuck at home. I'm not a huge reality TV show person, but then in my research of reality TV, I did find a lot of shows that I like. They're just different types. Like I'm more like the singing competitions or the dancing mm. competition type reality show versus relationship or competition based. They're actually, those are all like classified different too, which is interesting. Like competition really? shows have a little bit more regulation around safety, around wellness and stuff than like a dating show would. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But I will say that none of them are great. Like I've talked to so many folks, the foundation across the cooking shows, like who knew a cooking show could be like traumatizing and ruin someone's life. Not me, but I do now. Is it Hell's Kitchen? It wasn't even Hell's Kitchen. Really? It wasn't even Hell's Kitchen? I'm, be, I'm sure it is. <laughs> I'm sure it is Hell's Kitchen too. But <laughs> I mean, when you watch these shows and you see how people act, not only is there like these tropes and these characters, there's villains and there's heroes and it's all manipulated behind the scenes. You don't really know who anybody is. The more that you hear people after the show comes out and they say, that's not how I was portrayed. That's not who I am. It's just, there's a pattern. What's interesting on that too, just really quick commentary on that. It's interesting because this is what I started clicking a few months back after, you know, so you hear a lot of quote villains are the ones that are vocal, right? And I want everyone to know that you are contractually bound against speaking about production, your working conditions, and against the edit with astronomical fines, specifically on like my show, it was $1 million each time that you go against the edit or break 
contract. Wow. Okay. So it is insane. And then to say they don't enforce that, well, we just yesterday at the UCAN Foundation, which I know we'll, we'll touch on, but that's a foundation that I co-founded to help reality cast members with mental health and legal support and then advocate for change in the industry, served a $4 million arbitration suit from the production company because she went through the entire process of Love is Blind and she was completely edited out. Her entire relationship, her entire process, and she talked about it and they sued her for $4 million. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Luckily, we were able to have the resources to hook her up with an attorney to represent her and then also counter sue against the illegal nature of those contracts. So, you know, a lot coming there, but it's insane that she was cut out and went through the this, you know, very challenging experience and isn't allowed to talk about it. Wow. It's crazy. Yeah. And then every show has a villain. That's the other thing. Every show is a villain. And when people are like, oh, you're just mad because you were the villain. It's like no, the people that were so misrepresented and edited into a villain, which why does every show have a villain? Why does every show have a hero to your point? And, you know, there's a lot of crazy evil people out there, but like they don't all find their way to reality TV to show their villainous side. Right. No. And so it's like, it's very damaging. It's very damaging. And they're the ones that speak out because they're the ones that were hurt the most by it mentally jobs, their lives, businesses, whatever. And then on top of that, they're the ones that are are then subject to the ridicule as it is, but then subject to more ridicule. And people just can't seem to grasp, but not everyone, a lot of people get it, but can't seem to grasp that these things are so heavily edited and that they're such manufactured situations that people are, are just doing the best they can. You know, it's not like someone's going into a casting show like Love is Blind or Married at First Sight or 90 Day Fiance thinking I'm going to go be a real big asshole so that I can get the villain at it. Wow. Right. Nobody's <laughs> thinking that. No. That's really interesting that you say about the contracts, because when I was promoting Lula Rich, there were like different TV shows and different radio shows that they wanted me to come on and, you know, do this like press junket kind of thing. And I do remember having to sign contracts and the weird things in the contracts were like, I will not talk disparagingly. I'm like, well, I'm not going to do that. Like, because it was just promoting a show. But at the same time, I'm like, dang, just for me coming on to promote this show, like you are making me sign this contract saying that I'm not going to disparage things, like that they have the right to sue me if I do, oh, if yeah. I mention certain things, if I talk about the production aspect, if I talk about like what went wrong versus what went right. I was like, dang, even for like yep. a 10 minute little spot. It's the same thing. And what's crazy about that, at least in my case, my contract had the absolute opposite. It said, we can defame you. We can misrepresent you. You have no choice or say in the matter or can retort it whatsoever. But by the way, you can't talk about production. You can't talk about your working conditions. You can't talk about the logistics of how things work. You can't go against the edit. They're completely one-sided, completely strip away the rights of individuals, which by the way, a lot of these rights that you're talking about, you basically signed away. And then, you know, I signed away. Like, you can look at them and know how things work in these industries, but you can look at them and just be like, well, I'm going to be myself. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to just sign up. And then before you know it, you're the villain and you want to speak out or something horrible safety wise happens. And there's a lot of safety issues with this stuff too, because there's no protocols or proper protocols. It's just crazy to think about it. 
you know, I think often about like all the regulations on the sets of like movies when it comes to weapons and stunts. And, you know, we had the whole Alec Baldwin thing last year, maybe it was two years ago now, all of this, the safety protocols, like you don't really have that stuff in reality TV. No, I'm sure you'd probably don't have it in most documentaries either. No, not at all. Like if I'm going to go, uh, what was it? We were supposed to paddleboard on the show for one day and COVID shut our thing down, all this stuff. So we didn't do it. But I was thinking to myself, I'm like, I am not a paddleboarder. I've never done it. It's not, it's not something I would do. And I'm thinking like, what would happen if I did actually get hurt? You know, and, and sure, maybe there's like a first aid kit or a first aid person. But like, what if I drown? Like, like, right. You know what I mean? It's, it's crazy. Wow. Yeah. And there, if that was Hollywood or a, a SAG production, there would be all sorts of safety measures in place there. But the reality is reality TV and documentaries, which you've learned a little bit and I've learned too, they're unregulated. They've escaped labor laws. They've escaped regulation. And that's kind of where things need to change so that people's lives aren't just completely ruined or injured. Or, you know, I, I've just heard so many horror stories of people getting severely injured, getting assaulted, getting sick, and just being, you know, trafficked around to keep filming these shows. It's wild. It's really. It is. So when we talked the first time and we were talking about how reality TV is kind of culty, I actually went and did a little bit of research. One of the things that I like to use around here is the bite model by Dr. Stephen Hassan, which is sort of this model of authoritarian control. And the articles that I've read and what I've seen, you talk about like a lot of like this happened to me or I was put in these sort of situations. I was isolated. I wasn't allowed to do this. I was told I had to do these certain things. So we're going to get into all of that. I think it's really important and I'm excited to talk about this. But first, I want to talk about how you even like came into the purview of Love is Blind, because you say that you're a villain, but you were one of my favorites. I don't think I was a villain. Yeah, I don't really think I don't think I was a villain. I think my relationship was a little misrepresented and very one sided. It was very clear as time went on. They were trying to tell a story that wasn't really there. I think I, I had some stuff that I was like, well, context would have helped there. And some people are are just, you know, out of their minds to be mean on the internet about something. But I, I feel like Santa Claus would get hate if he was on a reality show. So yeah, you were one of my favorites. Well, thank you. I was like, Nick <laughs> seems to like, have his shit together. I did. That's why I was cast. Like, <laughs> he seems like this really good match, like a good pick, right? So yeah. let's talk about where you were in your life when Love is Wine came knocking and what that looked like. Yeah. So um, it was the end of 2020. It was November of 2020. I had been very successful in my career. I was a VP in marketing at a software company, you know, managing big team, managing a big business, very successful. Spent most of my social media energy on LinkedIn, obviously to promote my career, to promote my content, promote my, you know, my, my role, my company, all of that stuff. And I actually got a DM on LinkedIn of someone who was a casting agent. Now the casting people are all independent contractors. So it's, I think of it kind of like, it's almost like a rat race where you want to present the best potential cast members. And, um, you know, most of the people, I actually don't think anyone from my season, if I remember correctly, uh, applied. They were all recruited. So I get this really? message. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Don't quote me on that 100%, but I know most of the people were recruited. And so they reached out on LinkedIn and, you know, it was something very funny. 
you are attractive, you look professional, something to that extent. I should actually find it. But uh, she was actually wonderful. I have no, uh, she was a great person, or at least uh, nicest, you know, to me and my experience with her. But it was crazy because I laughed. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I had heard of the show because everyone talked about it, but I never in my wildest thoughts would have thought I'd ever watch it. I'm like you, I'm not a big reality TV person because I just, I kind of know it's a little, you know, it's a little over edited to me. It's a little structurally whatever, but she did it. And I was like, I'm just, why not take this call? So I laugh. I'm like, I'm just going to take this call. And then four months later, I'm there. And it just kind of like snowballed through hours and hours of interviews, putting together like video interviews that they would put sizzle reels together and like present you to Netflix and all of this stuff. I remember like setting up my... (laughs) my desk in front of the window so that I had like natural light for the like crazy stuff like that you do (laughs) there's a psych evaluation you spend you know several hours talking to your producer ahead of time and they're just you know getting to know you and every intricate detail of your life and your triggers and your mindset and your frame of you know reference for values and all of that kind of stuff and I, I remember I was like trying to tell them I was I feel like I was trying to talk them out of me because I just was like I'm not dramatic. I'm like well-regulated for the most part. I have a few things that really irritate me, but otherwise like I, I'm able to like show people grace and not be reactive, be responsive. And it's all learned, right? It took me a long time to not be reactive, but I'm like, I don't think I'm what you want. Like I'm super into like talking about ideas and news and politics. Like we were doing a little bit beforehand with, uh, with, uh, that stuff. Like I'd rather (laughs) talk about like Right. Culture and ideas than other people. And I felt like I just didn't think I was a fit, but I ended up going. But that's because I think I had my shit together. You can see from my LinkedIn, I have a good job. I'm like, I think I was at the right age. I was like 34, 35 at that time. And it was just clear to me in retro, not at the time, in retrospectively, they casted three or four guys that were in their mid 30s with good jobs, owning houses, decent money, good profession. And it was just clear or it became clear that they were picking guys that they thought would most likely go all the way. And then, of course, there's, you know, the shit show of of people. You watch all the shows. And again, a lot of that gets edited. A lot of that's alcohol induced, all of that stuff. But um, yeah, I definitely think in retrospect, like I was cast to be that person. And then I know when I connected with my ex, Danielle, it was pretty quick. And there was a moment where... I came out and like a bunch of guys had been sent home and this was like day three or four. And it was like all the other guys that were kind of the ones that had their stuff together were, were gone and it was just me. And then, wow, yeah. So again, it was in retrospect where I look at this and I'm like, Oh my God. Cause I, I've talked to people, several people that are producers or behind the scenes, you know, crew members, and they do like, cast to characters that they want and storylines that they want like it isn't it isn't a camera crew just following you around as you you go through your everyday life like you're put in specific situations and told what to talk about and you know what they're trying to accomplish in the scene and it's like stop go stuff like that now you so you had never seen the first season no and i i should have i did watch it when it kind of got serious there was nothing else to do. it was like january or february i wasn't I was dating a little bit, but like I was kind of just over it too, which was like, maybe this could work. The idea kind of seems conceptually like I get how it could work, you know, in a, in a sense it did. And I do believe conceptually, you you know, it can work. Just doesn't mean you got to exploit people and ruin their lives in the process. Right. 
so when you watched season one or watched a little bit before the show started, did you have any feeling of like, uh oh, what did I sign up for? Or did you feel confident? I actually, like I said, I was kind of like, I say sleepwalking through the application process because I never thought it would be real. I never thought they would want somebody who was like me. I watched it twice. The first time I watched it, I was like, this seems different. I had only watched one season of The Bachelor socially with people. And I'm like, this seems more legit. This seems real. We had our couples, Lauren and Cameron, Amber and Matt Barnett. And I, you know, for the drama that was there with some of it, I was like, I think those people, like, you can kind of tell there's like real feelings there. And so it kind of made me buy in a little. There was like an authenticity there with those two couples specifically that I felt was like, oh, like maybe this is legit. Maybe this is different. And that's what they tell you the whole time. We're not trying to be the bachelor. We're trying to help people find love. We're psychology based. We're not drama based. Like all of this stuff you get sold on the way in. And so I, I believed it. Now, if it were now, I would go back and watch five seasons and see the the spiraling shit show that it's continuing to evolve to be, I probably would be like, no freaking way. Yeah. Now it's just like a guilty hot mess. Oh, my gosh. Last season seems like it was a, a nightmare, like behind the scenes on the camera. There were like less episodes because they didn't have as much content. It was very forced. You could tell people were not there for. And what is the right reasons? Like, I think there's an argument to be made. Right. But yeah. Yeah. It's just wild. It, yeah. It's crazy to me. These stories that I've unfortunately been able to hear is like, it's brutal. So for anybody listening who has never seen Love is Blind, it's essentially a dating show where you fall in love without seeing the person in these like rooms they call pods and you get to know somebody sight unseen and then you decide, hey, I want to marry you. And once you get engaged, that's when you finally see the person for the first time. Yes. Then you go to Mexico or wherever for a getaway and then you come back home and meet friends and family and stuff like that. But you you yeah. nailed it. I might have to borrow your <laughs> elevator pitch. <laughs> like yesterday, I was like, there's these things called pods and you're kind of in them and you're talking to each other through a wall and there's speakers there. And you. I was just like, it's weird. It's just weird to like think about as something that actually happened. Well, that was well, real. What is the experience like going into these pods and just having faceless conversations with like voices? So it's very strange. I can't imagine what it would have been like not having at least watched it from season one. Like conceptually, that's one of those things like I think you can kind of imagine what it would be like. But if you have seen it, it makes it a lot more digestible. What surprised me the most was, so it starts off 15 men, 15 women, you speed date like seven minutes the first day, and then you rank people. And, uh, you know, I built, you know, an algorithm in my notebook, which was something that I commented on on the show that made it in that was pretty funny, because I just wanted I I took it pretty seriously, because I I didn't want to be, you know, stuck in an unhealthy relationship. I didn't want to be doing something just for the sake of doing it or being drunk or whatever that is. So walking in the first time, it it was a little weird. I'm trying to remember who I talked to first. I can't even remember who I talked to first, but I remember it was like getting towards the end and I'm, I'm an introvert too. And I felt like the conversations were very surfacey. Yeah. Vapid. Which they would be. And I just remember like I was probably on 11 or 12 of the 15 and I'm just like, I'm going home after this. That was like (laughs) in my mindset. I'm like, I don't feel like I could connect with anyone. 
And maybe I'm like, there was one that I was like, oh, I think it would be fun. And then there was another one I was like, uh, maybe, but like, it takes more time. Like, this is not going to. And then I met Danielle and like the whole thing changed from there. And she was, she was uh, very real and I, it was different than most of the other people that I had talked to. But it, it was funny because I was really like, I can't believe I thought this was a good idea. I'm going to be going home. <laughs> and then you talk to Danielle and you're like, oh, wait, yeah, maybe there is a connection yeah. here. So spoiler, season two, you decide to choose Danielle, you propose, you see each other, you go to Mexico. And this is this, I think, for people that watch season two, this was the scene because it was definitely the scene for me where I was like, oh, my God, what are they doing on this show? Because Mm -hmm. Danielle has a panic attack in Mexico. And here you are. You just saw her face like what a day or two before you just really got engaged. Very new. Yeah. And you're thrust into this. They're basically like, hey, your fiance's freaking out. Do you think you can handle it? They didn't even say that. Oh, my that God. That was the thing. So this is the weird thing that happened. So and I know we <clears throat> talked a little about like isolation, but you see them for the first time for 25 minutes, and then you don't see them or talk to them for like three or four days. What? Yeah, you're isolated in your hotel room back in LA where the pods were. Then you're, I'm just going to say it. You're trafficked to the airport. By the way, you don't have your credit card. You don't have your ID. You don't have your passport. They give you your passport right as you're going into check-in, and they wait for it as soon as you go through check-in on the other side. Oh, my God. Like TSA. So you don't have anything, right? And then we go to Mexico, and we have two or three days where we're not in the resort. We're in some random-ass Hampton Inn Social or something like that in the middle of Mexico, in the middle of downtown Cancun, and you're just stuck there with no passport, no ID, or anything. You can't leave. You can't leave your room you, you, without permission. It, I mean, it's just wild. Then you go and you're you're there and you see them again for the first time since you've seen them for the first time. And it's been four days where you've been isolated. You've just completely gaslit yourself into this person hating you and thinking you're disgusting or whatever. <laughs> and it, you get there. And then there was a COVID outbreak on the set. So oh, the no. first day in Mexico, full day, was shut down. So we were stuck in our hotel room and again, not in my view, adequate food and water, two bottles of alcohol. And um, we just hung out all day and we talked and it was, you know, theoretically off of camera and sound unless they had the, the rooms bugged, which they can, according to the contract, they can do. And so we just got to really know each other and spend time with each other that day. The next day, Danielle got sick and it was probably lack of food and water maybe getting some of the water in her mouth, whatever. And it was a stomach issue, which is a symptom of COVID. So they actually wouldn't let her film or go to the couple's reveal party, which is the first time all the couples get together once you're coupled up. And they wouldn't let her go. And it made no sense, right? Because I was with her the whole time. I could be contagious. She tested negative, by the way. We both tested negative for COVID. And then it was like, well, Nick, we think you should go to the party to represent you two as a couple. And I was like, I'm not going without her. I don't really have any interest in that. And they eventually kind of talked us into doing that. So I went to the party solo. She stayed in the hotel by herself. When she was there by herself, this is really like the first time she was by herself and all started sinking in. And of course, this is her story to tell, but she's told it. And she had a panic attack. And when I got back, they were like, Nick, you're going to go in there and you're going to tell Danielle what the party was like and what the couples were like. 
And they didn't tell me that she had a panic attack. So they're like, she's sitting on the bed, on the end of the bed. She's not miked. So stay close to her so we can pick up her sound from yours. So I go in there and I had no idea. And I just noticed she was short and uninterested in what I was saying. And then we figured it out. And I was like, you know, F this. And I like threw the microphone at him and said, we're done and we're leaving. And um, yeah, they, they, of course, it was all hands on deck. Every producer was there. They were trying to talk us into staying and they eventually did, you know, and what are you going to do? We didn't have any IDs. We're in a foreign country. We don't have a passport. Like, what are you going to do? And this is supposed to be the beginning of a budding relationship with your soulmate who you met sight unseen. And so this is so much more powerful than any other sort of meeting because love is blind and blah, 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 blah. And this is your, they always tell you, this is your love story. And you go in completely unprepared. Yeah. And then there's no help. And this is what we're going to tell our kids one day? Well, that, yeah. And that is what Dr. Isabel, who's a psychologist on the board of directors of UCAN, says. She's like, what reality TV is doing here is it's normalizing bad behavior in relationships. And it's it's yeah. being shown to young people. It's being shown to, this is how you treat each other in a relationship. And it's brutal, right? Yeah. And And that's the thing is like, yeah. And there was no like therapist or counselor there. That could have been like, okay, Danielle is not feeling ready to go. Veto, we're not filming. We're going to check in with her tomorrow. Like no protocols or anything like that. Despite their claims that they had two psychologists on set, they were nowhere to be seen when someone had a panic attack. And to me, that would be the time they show their face. Yeah. You know, at least to help her, if not to help us navigate how to do this, you know, like what she needs, what I can do, you know, it's just, it's brutal. It just sets you off. That changed the whole trajectory of our entire, I don't know if I would say entire relationship, but like our entire experience on the show after that. Yeah. Do you ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet just for anyone to find? I promise it's more than you think. Your name, contact info, social security number, home address, even information about your family members. It's all being compiled by data brokers and openly sold online. This can lead to a lot of problems, including identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. But now you can protect your privacy with Delete Me. Signing up for the service is super easy. Just provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. They send you regular, personalized privacy reports showing what info they found, where they found it, and what they removed. I got my report and I was floored with the results. Of the 105 data brokers they checked, 83 of them had my data. Delete Me then removed 173 listings of my personal data off the internet. And they make sure that it stays off too. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me at a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and use promo code MLM at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and enter code MLM at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash MLM code MLM. Head over to quince.com and grab yourself a little something something and support the show by supporting our sponsors. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and say hello to lightweight fabrics and classic styles. 
I have been taking advantage of the beautiful weather and getting outside for daily walks, and I cannot say enough good things about the flow knit high rise boyfriend jogger from Quince. Seriously, running errands, doing school pickups, swinging by the farmer's market, or taking Jaja for a stroll around the lake, these bad boys are versatile. I love the deep pockets, the high waistband, and the internal hidden drawstring. They're quick drying, moisture wicking, antimicrobial, and the four-way stretch makes them so comfortable. They're made with 88% recycled polyester and the Global Style Standard Certified Yarn dramatically lowers environmental impact by diverting landfill and ocean-bound plastic. Not to mention using recycled claims standard approved dyeing, washing, and manufacturing processes with low water and eco-friendly dyes. They have become an absolute favorite, and you can save up to 59% off the high-end counterpart by shopping with Quince. Throw on a cotton modal scoop neck tee and some sneakers, and you've got a perfect effortless outfit. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash MLM for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MLM to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MLM. Well, what's the point of doing a psyche vowel when they're interviewing you to see if you're a good candidate? If like, if Danielle has panic attacks or she's not emotionally in the right place to be on this reality TV show, that's going to throw her through all of these hoops to jump through. What's the point of that? Yeah, I know. Don't you think a psyche vowel would have been like, Hey, she's a little fragile. Maybe she's not great for this season or something like that. Like anything. And the fact that it didn't happen and then she's thrown into the situation and then you're thrown right on top and it's like, figure it out. It's great TV. Yep. Sit close to her so we can pick up her voice. We I don't want to miss any juicy goss. They did a complete disservice to her. They did a complete disservice to me and they did a complete disservice to our relationship, especially when it was in such a fragile new place, right? And the thing that is really just brutal about that is they started to like learn her triggers and learn how to like break her down and her insecurities. And I found this out after, but like they would ask her these questions in her interviews where it was just her and they would be like things like, well, do you think that your anxiety makes you unlovable to Nick? Or do you think that Nick says he doesn't know if he can deal with your anxiety, which is like not something I would ever say, even if I felt that for some reason. I wouldn't say that. That's a hurtful, unnecessary thing to say, right? So it would just be like all sorts of crazy, do you think Nick would still love you if you gained weight again? Like all of this stuff where, you know, they just took these things they knew about her and learned about her and used them against her. And that's why I, and we're doing some work at the UCAN Foundation to try and get these. Uh, so you sign these psychobals away, like you can never see them. And I believe that they use these psych evaluations not to determine if you're qualified or if you're healthy enough to go on the show, but to fit you into the box that they want to fit you in and then use what they know about you to psychologically manipulate you. Absolutely. That's what I'm feeling too. Yeah. Like they have you write down all your triggers and then you're like, here's a list of her triggers. Yeah. You do a test and you do an interview. It's crazy. And my psychologist that did my interview for my psych eval also talked to my therapist. What? Yeah. Which again, like that was my ask. I was like, I want to get her view on how they're using these psych evals. And so she had a, and she was like, I think they're doing their due diligence, but we were looking at it from the framework of 
they're doing these to see if you're mentally fit to handle the pressures of filming 18 to 20 hour days and being shuffled around to different places in these high stress environments with all these stakes, right? So we were looking at it from the whole wrong approach. She was going to make sure that she felt they were going to have other people that were mentally okay and mentally well, but don't think that's exactly what they're using these for. No. I mean, they're like, we're going to use it for good. And then they're like, we're going to use it for evil, actually. Yeah, I 100% agree. One of the things that you and I talked about before we hit record was like the fact that a lot of people forget that the people on your screen are humans. They're Mm -hmm. real people with real lives. When you watch a scripted TV show, when you watch something where these people are playing characters, you can hate the character in the show because it's not the actor. It's not that guy. It's not that lady. It's the character. But when you create characters out of people, you are hating this character who's actually a real person. And you think it's real. Who is going through all of this stuff too. And yeah, you think it's real too because you've been groomed into believing that this is real. This is reality TV. I mean, again, one of the reasons I never liked reality TV is because it never seemed real to me. It always seemed scripted. It's like the escalation. They have to escalate. They have to make it bigger. They have to make it crazier. They have to make it more dramatic. Yeah. And by the way, when it gets like that, it also starts attracting people that are going to be more dramatic and more escalatory. And it makes you wonder, like, what is the purpose, right? Like, I stupidly got convinced that this was a psychology-based love experiment. And you know what? Maybe at its core, rawest form, that was the intention. But I can tell you from my experience and my post-show experience, they didn't give a shit about me or my relationship because they refused to help when we were asking for help. And then on top of that, it was like, once it was over and it was on to like the next season, for example, they just ghost you. They don't care. No one checked in when my divorce was, you know, leaked by TMZ. They let me know that they weren't going to sue me because we were legally bound to stay married longer than we were. Wow, that was in the contract too? Oh yeah, that's a whole nother. Yeah, if you get married, you can't get divorced until a certain number of time after the last episode airs. Wow. Yeah. That is so controlling. And also... If you get engaged, you are contractually bound to go through with the wedding or they can charge you 50K. Even if you know you're going to say no, yep, you have to go through the whole thing because, okay, yep. so another thing on the show is you're planning a wedding and you get to meet the family and the women go dress shopping and the men go get tuxes and they buy their suits and they do the thing. I mean, it's literally everything. Was there cake tastings and all of this stuff too? Yeah, we are. (laughs) So that's another funny thing. It's like, so we did cake tasting, but basically all the stuff you do at weddings outside of dresses and tuxes, they just had like one couple do. So we were the couple that did taste testing for cake. Oh, you guys got to choose everybody's cakes. (laughs) Well, it's... It's hilarious because we actually, I have a friend who's a professional baker and I'm gluten-free and she wanted to do my, our wedding cake, like a gluten-free carrot cake. So we had two cakes. We had, I think we had two. We definitely had the gluten-free carrot cake from my friend, but I feel like there might've been another one too. I can't remember now. So, I mean. It's wild. So for however many couples end up getting engaged and going through with this, like that's a bunch of weddings that are 
hiring people, making cakes, making food, setting up weddings, inviting family and friends, people having to go to all of these things, even if you know you're going to say no weeks before to pretend everything's fine, pretend everything's golden and to show up. And that's one of the premises of the show is you walk down the aisle and you either say I do or I don't. And that's when you find out whether or not you're getting married is when the person across from you goes, I can't. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, and they're just like, okay, bye. And they just walk away. It is this really wild thing. And you're not allowed to talk to them for a few hours before the wedding too. So I was arguing because we weren't sure what we were going to do. And to your point, like one of the things that entered my mind, because we were kind of the weekend before. So we were supposed to get married on a Sunday and then they moved us to a Tuesday, which I think was probably for some nefarious reason other than what they said, because what they said turned out to not be true. But my dad is, he's an electrician at a hospital. Like he can't, so like Sunday, he would have been able to go. He can't take a random Tuesday off a few days before the wedding. Like that's just not, it's just not the, like who's going to hook up the hospital beds, right? It's like that kind of to thing. So, you know, he's got to put in for time off. At it. So my dad couldn't make it. And then when we were, when we were trending towards no and just dating after the show, and, and just taking it at a normal pace. And most of that, by the way, was just everything that like the deterioration of mental health from the producers, right? Just like not being comfortable feeling like you could be the partner, right? So we were going to do that. And we just stopped inviting family and friends because it was like, well, we're going to say no. And like, I keep thinking about like the trauma that would come of anyone really, but like, Danielle walking down in the dress she wanted, getting walked down the aisle by her dad in front of her friends and family and the entire world and getting up there only to hear a no. Anyone going up there and going through that, like that's that's a traumatic event. That's like soap opera shit yeah. right there, right? Like, like let's get the dramatic. And they did that to us too, the dramatic pause. I actually said I do the second the minister stopped talking because I didn't want to give them anything to work with. And they still edited it to make it look like I was not sure what I was going to say and the cliffhanger before the finale. It was, That's my least favorite part. I was like, man, that is some. <laughs> <laughs> the pregnant pause of like, mm, oh, yeah. Mm, are we, what are they going to say? Cut to commercial break. Like for me, it's just it's so pandering and it makes me feel like stupid for falling for it, for being like, oh, my gosh, it's a real reality show that where love is the center And then meeting you and talking to you and and finding out all of these things and reading all of these articles and being like, I knew reality TV was a scam, but love is blind. It came and it was like, we're going to do something completely different because we care about the mental health and we care about the connection. And it's not, it's not surface level. It's deeper. It's innovative. Love is blonde. Like, let's prove it. We know it's real. That's the marketing. Yeah. And you buy into all of it. Brilliant marketing. You fall right for it. And you're like, oh my gosh, we're home. We have nothing else to do. There's a new Love is Blind on today. And now I watch it because it's this like social experiment for me, even more so now talking to you and being able to see it and pinpoint it. Because the more I talked to you, the more I was like, this is a cult. Like that's Colts do that. Colts do that. Colts do that. Like this is a cult. When I, I met a friend, Callie Easel, and she was in a cult for 10 years and I had her on my podcast in the fall. I met her randomly through someone and she like her friend introduced her as someone who was in a cult 
And so I naturally asked because I'm very curious. And um, when she was telling me and then I was telling her like what my experience was, she's like, it sounds like you were in a cult <laughs> the way they like bring you there. And then like first you give up your phone and then you give up your passport and your wallet and then they go through all your stuff and then you got to put it all back in your suitcase and then they give you a meal and it's like grooming you or training you with like the carrot and the stick approach, right? Where it's like, here's a carrot. You let us go through your stuff. Here's a carrot. You gave us your credit cards. Here's a stick. If you try to leave, you're going to get the stick. <laughs> By the way, you're going to go to your hotel room for, we got there on a Saturday. We didn't film until a Monday. So we spent, you know, most of the day Saturday, all of the day Sunday, and some of the day Monday trapped in a hotel room, no phone, no internet, no really not. I would say, I have to be careful how I say this. I didn't feel like I was given enough food or water. You couldn't leave your room because you didn't have a hotel key. And if you did leave and you had to go to the Wrangler to get it, your ass was in trouble. If you call the front desk, the front desk tells the producer or the Wrangler and that you're screwed. If you want to go to the gym or you want to go to the pool, you got to sign up for a half an hour interval. By the way, there's 15 other dudes trying to sign up to go to the gym and to the, the pool. And so it was just... And it, it was no suite of a hotel room either. It was it was like a bed, a chair that was 10 years old, and a TV that was not connected to any apps, um, at least most of the time when they figured out they were still connected to YouTube. It's wild. So you're stuck in like a basic hotel room until they throw you on set, which is the resort with the jacuzzis on the balconies and all that stuff. Right, right. And okay. then it get, but this too, before the pods, and then you go and you film 18 to 20 hours, you get shuttled to and from the set all the way back. You have to ask to go to the bathroom. Sometimes you're allowed to go right away. Sometimes you got to wait. Oh my God. There's even a scene in my season. Now they show beautiful montages of all the food because they're getting sued and people are speaking out about it. But there was like literally a scene in season two where Kyle from my season was like, oh, there's a couple blueberries here. We better fight over them or something to that extent. And that was kind of like the the way it was. And you're not out getting any sunlight really, except for that little 15, 20 minute commute. You're just being, you're really being like trafficked and shuffled around and you don't have any recourse. And the way I also like to describe it is people say, well, why didn't you just leave? Yeah. Well, you have to get producer's permission to leave or you're subject to a $50,000 damages clause. Fuck it. I'm going. What happens then? I run out of the set. I don't have any ID. I don't have any of my clothes. I don't have any money. I don't have a credit card. What do I do? It's like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You stop the first car and you're like, there's this crazy reality TV production chasing me down and they won't let me leave and I broke out. Please help me. Oh my God. Who's going to believe that? Wow. So like I said, Dr. Stephen Hassan's bite model of authoritarian control like hits so many of these things. So I separated them by the different acronym. I have a feeling this is going to give me a lot more anxiety about this than I, I said it casually one time. And it's like now it's becoming this like even in my cease and desist I got, they said you referenced and compared this to a cult. And it was like, yeah, yeah, I did. Uh-huh. We're going to prove you right right now, Nick. <laughs> so BITE stands for behavior, information, thought, and emotion. And they're the four ways that high demand, we don't even have to call it a cult. We can call it high demand control, like controls you. 
So mm-hmm. I grabbed a couple quotes from like different articles you had done and, and you've referenced this before, but this is what made me think of B, behavior control. So you say you're on set for mm-hmm. 18 to 20 hours and then you just get sent back to the hotel room. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be on TV, but you're mic'd up from the moment you get there in the morning and you're mic'd all the way until you leave. You give up your phone, your wallet, your passport. You're not allowed to leave the hotel without permission. You can't really comprehend what it's like to be isolated. Hotel like room. That. And hotel room without permission. Hotel room without permission. I would almost understand the hotel, right? Like, (laughs) we need to keep you in here. We're responsible for you. Go to the pool. Go to the restaurant. Get a coffee. No, like, you can't leave your room without permission. Well, you allege, we'll say allege, that the producers are in control of you for 24 hours a day and that you are contractually obligated to continue with the experiment or risk having to pay 50000 in damages. So these... It's a whole list, but these were the seven that made me go, oh, this is what's happening right here. So number one, dictate where, how, and with whom the member lives or associates or isolates with. Check. Regulate your diet, your food and drink, hunger and or fasting. Like you're saying, there was allegedly not enough food and drink. Manipulation and deprivation of sleep. Again, you're being recorded. You're saying you're working 18 to 20 hours a day. That's... Not a lot of time for sleep. Right. And it's funny because they say like, you know, 7.30, 8 o'clock, whenever you have to be in the hotel lobby, they literally like threaten you. Like my job is to to get you to set on time because every 15 minutes costs $50,000. I don't remember what the numbers are. Don't quote me there. But those things. So then you're kind of like, oh my God, I've got two minutes or I'm going to be in trouble because I'm going to cost the production. And it's like, fuck you forget that you're a human being who needs sleep and also after you've been filming for so long like you're sleep deprived but you're also wired mm-hmm. right because you're making these crazy life-altering decisions so it is it's just keeping your like nervous system just boom 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 yeah the next one which you literally just touched on financial exploitation manipulation and dependence so not only do you not have any money you don't have your wallets and you're getting like a stipend for the week but also they're threatening you you're not here fast enough. It's costing us money. You know, mm-hmm. like it, there's a lot of manipulation of uh, and financial exploitation. Also, rewards and punishments used to modify your behavior, both positive and negative. Permission required for major decisions or even minor ones. <laughs> Can I go to the bathroom? Can I go to the gym? And imposing of rigid rules and regulations. That's just under behavior. Jeez. So we check. Is there anyone there that wasn't checked? <laughs> Those are just the ones that I pulled out. I mean, there's other ones that are a little more extreme and you can go through it. You probably connect with them differently. But like for me, just reading those words, I was like, this one, this one, this one. Those are just the most obvious ones. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's. Yeah. (laughs) And then you also mentioned that, you know, the people that say, well, you signed up for this, right? And this quote says, I don't have a lot of patience for the you signed up for it crowd anymore because they're upset about something in their life and they're projecting that onto reality cast members who are clearly (laughs) exploited and subjected to defamation and misrepresentation. You don't know what it's actually like until you live it, which I will 1 billion percent agree with you. People love to have opinions on things they've never experienced (laughs) and specifically control and high demand control like this. So the next checkmark on the bite model is information control, which is again, like people who are like, you signed up for this, but the information that you signed up for and what you actually signed up for were two completely different things. Right. So one of the things in information control is deception. 
deliberately withholding information, distorting information to make it more acceptable, and systematically lying to the cult member or reality show contestant. Oh, that's that's a, the job description <laughs> of a reality TV producer, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Two, encourage spying on other members. Impose a buddy system to monitor and control members. Report deviant thoughts, feelings, and actions to leadership. Ensure that individual God. behavior is monitored by the group. Okay. Like you're saying, you're not even allowed to do anything without the front desk having to tattle on you. Like there's a system set up. It is. And the producers and stuff try to pull information about your relationship, but also about like other people. And I remember like, so I'm not like, I'm not into the the drama, right? Like I, I really, I'm not. I I would ask people. So I got people think I was like very dramatic and stirring shit up. But like the funny thing about it was I was actually asking these cast members, you know, what is I didn't think they were taking it seriously. Okay, and that there were relationships happening and things that were happening and everyone was, you know, not realizing it felt like this was a real marriage and you sign a marriage certificate before you go to the altar. So the minister signs it as soon as you say yes or no, or doesn't sign it as soon as you say no. Wow. I felt like, okay, so people were like sleepwalking through this whole thing and, and buying into the illusion of the idea and not really like questioning or thinking what happens when that camera shuts off and you've got a, a real life to live with this person. Like, are you really going to get married to someone you haven't been physically intimate with? Are you really going to marry someone that makes you rehearse your conversations ahead of time? Like, are you, so these were the things I was asking people. And I'm like, I felt like, I'm like, am I going crazy? Like, are people going to go up to the altar and maybe marry someone after seven weeks and like not think these things through? So I would just, ask them like inception like maybe you should think about being intimate before you decide to marry someone maybe you should you know and, and again it's not like there was a belief system in place that i was aware of that stopped that which would have been totally fine but it was just it was just kind of like meandering through it and so i would i would ask these questions and i wouldn't talk to people very much outside of filming so i would go into these things and i'd be like what the hell's been going on the last 3 days how's your relationship going you know stuff like that and it was the same post show. Like I just didn't really, you know, have these really close relationships with anyone from the show. You know, I, I'm acquaintances with some of them and I'll catch up with them every now and then over drinks or something, but it just wasn't my thing to become best friends with everyone. And so, yeah, they would try to pull info. They would try to pull info out. That's where I was going. Yeah. So it'd be, I remember we were doing after the altar and they're like, uh, pulling me like, what's going on with Jared and Ayana? I'm like, I don't know. What is, do you know something going on? Like, I have no idea. I haven't talked to them in, in a while, you know, and, or what was going on here? And it's just like, I really don't know. I'm like, I can, I can ask, but you know, there were things they wanted me to ask. I'm like, I'm not asking that, but if it was, you know, a legitimate question or something I was curious about. Yeah. But also I didn't know all the behind the scenes of uh, what was going on. So I was just like naturally curious when I would see people again. It's interesting because I feel like you're reading my notes because my next one is the unethical use of confession. <laughs> <laughs> They're called OTS, on the fly interviews. <laughs> Information about sins used to disrupt and dissolve identity boundaries, withholding forgiveness or absolution, manipulation of memory, possible false memories. 100% on the memories. So the fact that they're like, just like, what do you think about this? Ooh, what did they say? Like just coaxing things out of you to 
like falsely represent people, taking things out of context. Like you saying, I was literally just asking how they had been because I hadn't seen them for three days. And what's taken out is you being like kind of catty, like, oh my God, what do you think is happening? Like you're some gossip monger. I know. And it's very interesting. It is because that's the last thing I do. Like I don't, I always have this mentality and I say this to people, I'm like, if I'm in a, a room or a group where people are talking about people, I'm in the wrong group. Like I don't want to talk about, I mean, I'll talk about people like there, but like, I don't want to gossip about people. I want to talk about world war three breaking out, you know, (laughs) imminently. Like I want to, you know, I want to talk about, you know, that kind of stuff that I talk about on my podcast, or I want to talk about mental health or somebody who experienced, you know, the immense control of, uh, being in a cult or an MLM scheme or whatever that, like, these are the things that like build my mind like why are are things the way they are why do people think the way they think if everybody's going left why is no one going right like i'd rather talk about that than talk about who's sleeping with who or who's not sleeping with who everything that you're telling me i'm just like that's a bite model like that's a cult thing like that's what cults do like that's what they want you to think that's how they want you to act so number three in the bite model is thought control okay like changing a person's name and identity which (laughs) Like you're yep. saying, I'm not the gossip monger, yet for some reason on this show, I am the gossip monger or certain people being portrayed in a certain way. The villains. Yeah, the villains. The use of loaded language and cliches, which constrict knowledge, stop critical thoughts and reduce complexities into platitudinous buzzwords. So the real things that you're concerned about, they're like, oh, and they just hey, have a cookie. Go sit over there. Like, it's not a big deal. Oh, yeah. I, I mean... It's funny because like I, t- I told you before, I'm like, I'm super into politics and the news and stuff like that. It's like a hobby. And there's one little line that made it in the show where I was like, oh, I was talking to her about capitalism. And like a whole bunch of people messaged me. What were you talking about capitalism? Like a news show that I watch on YouTube reached out. And we're shocked that I follow them and were like, you know, brought me on the show not to gossip, but to be like, what are your political thoughts on these things? You said this on the, you know, so it, it's funny because like there is almost an audience for me being authentic too, but that wasn't something that they found interesting enough to show, even though that's a, well, they're, you know, they fucked around and are finding out now that I know how to <laughs> activate people and yeah. and organize. So yeah. The other two that really stuck out to me under thought control is the rejection of rational analysis, critical thinking, and constructive criticism, and forbidding critical questions about the leader, the doctrine, or the policy. So it's, again, it's like, these are our rules. You're not allowed. This You signed it. This is what it is. And here you are. And you signed up for this. So why are you complaining? Yeah. And you're going to get so many followers. Someone told me you're going to passively make a million dollars a year. That's not real. <laughs> That's not true either. That's not actually paying me for my labor or my content. No. I got $1,000 a week. Oh, my gosh. Working 18 to 20 hours a day. And by the way, there's a lawsuit right now in California that Jeremy Hartwell filed, and it's alleging labor violations in the, the state of California. And the reality is, is the case being made is that when you're an employee by law, and you are controlled for 24 hours a day on what you can do and what you can't do, you're technically working 24 hours a day. And with that comes labor law, back pay, overtime pay, double overtime pay for weeks of working 24 hours a day while they're in control of you. And you know what's funny is they declare as contractors, but they issue W-2s. And that's because in California, 
they don't want to get in trouble with the government saying we're contractors. So they issue us W-2s, but then have a sign away to say that we're contractors. So they're like playing God. both sides of the fiddle there. Wow. It's all just so corrupt. It's a cult. Manipulative. It's a cult. It is. I mean, I don't have a problem calling things cults publicly, so I'll do it for you. But I mean, it, <laughs> it, this feels like a cult. Reality TV and like the way that it's presented, especially like emotional control, like manipulate and narrow the range of feelings. Some emotions and needs are deemed as evil, wrong or selfish. Teaching emotion stopping techniques to block the feelings of being homesick or anger or having doubt. Jesus. Making a person feel like problems are always their fault. And never the leader or the group or the organization or the producer. Promoting feelings of guilt and unworthiness like identity guilt or that your thoughts and feelings are irrelevant and selfish and that you are not living up to your potential. I have heard stories from other cast members where this is like way more extreme than it was for me. Like people have said, I told producers that I wasn't comfortable or I wasn't safe or I wasn't attracted or I didn't want to be around my uh, partner or my, my chosen person. And they said, well, you're just not, you're just not giving it enough time. Just give it time or just be intimate or just be, go back in the room and see what happened, like stuff like that. And it's like, do you feel what you feel anymore? Or do you feel what they tell you that you feel for the storyline purposes? You just have to try harder, Nick. <laughs> I don't think you're yeah, trying hard enough. I think that had to be what it was. <laughs> Are you doing all of the things that we told you? Did you go down the checklist of all of the things to make this a successful winning thing? Because if not, that's on you. If you're not doing what we told you to, then that's your fault. Well, and then when the cameras stop, you're, they don't care. They're gone. I realized that when we were struggling coming out and, I, and we just couldn't find a couples therapist. It wasn't that we didn't want to pay for it. It wasn't that we couldn't pay for it. It was COVID times. We couldn't find one. They were all working 12 hours a day helping everyone who you know developed so many mental health challenges during the pandemic. I mean, I remember my therapist said she took on double the client base at one point because of the need for it. And so we were just trying to get them to help us find someone that could see us. And they didn't care. And I, I just realized like oh, going wow. into the reunion, uh, which we did, you know, you do the reunion like 10 months later and you don't see the episode until like the day before the last episode. So you come in hot because you don't see them ahead of time. You see them when they release. And yeah, so the wedding episode you get on an encrypted iPad like the day before it comes out, I think it was, and which is also the day before the reunion. So you come in hot. And I just remember, I'm like, again, so much of this is retrospectively because for so long, I was just literally trying to get through the day. And what ended up happening was I realized they wouldn't have cared. They probably would have liked it more if we came into the reunion a mess as opposed to United. So when I was asking for help, thinking we're a success story, they have to care. Like they put us through this. They have to. And it's like, because you're, you're kind of like nurtured into this. Producers are your friends. We are the people that can help you. We are the people that help you navigate this. We're the people that help you decipher your feelings, all of this stuff. And then the next piece of content they're going to get is that reunion. And they don't really care if we showed up a mess. They would have loved it for TV instead of just, or at least this is how I feel about it. It feels like they would have rather had that than help us. And that's what's so frustrating about looking back at how I wasn't naive, but I was more naive than I thought I was. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, 
It's really crazy. And so your solution, because I'm the same, when I was an MLM, they told us, <laughs> my friends always laugh because I always say this, but if you see a hole, you should fill it. And I know that all the people with their minds in the gutters think that's hilarious and I get it. <laughs> but like you saw a hole in post-reality television, even recovery, mm-hmm. and you decided to fill it. And so you created You Can stands for Unscripted Cast Advocacy Network. Correct. That's right. Talk to me about your inspiration and how that came about. So this is like such a funny story. It literally, I was, when I saw my therapist this week and every now and then I, I have these moments where I'm like, why am I doing this? Like why I, <laughs> I feel you <laughs> seriously. It was like last year was the worst year ever of my life. And it really started in 2022 and just, you know, snowballed. I, I say it was my, never-ending quest to find and discover rock bottom. And um, I was really struggling. And it, it was this point at the end of last year where I had you know, gone through this year. I, I went into the year thinking it was going to be the best year of my life. I was married. I had, I mean, we had our issues, but like I was in love and you know, we were making plans with like everything. We would have the best times in the world. The show is coming out. You disillude yourself. You have no idea what that's like, by the way, which we probably do a whole freaking show on what it's like to wake up one morning and go from 300-something Instagram followers to 7,000, and then two weeks later, you got hundreds of thousands, right, watching your every move. They went through our Venmo transactions to see if we were still together. Wow. We had to turn our Venmos on private. You guys. Yeah. Leave people alone. I know. So it was supposed to be the best year. And then by the end, I I had been, you know, served divorce papers. It leaked before I was able to tell my family. I lost my job after getting misrepresented in the media and in interviews. And it was like the end of the year in 2022. And I'm like, this is the worst fucking year of my life. And I did everything right. Like, and it's to this point where I'm like, I went in with the best of intentions. I stayed true to myself. I didn't let my 15 minutes change me. And, you know, the greatest feeling I get is when someone that knows me or someone that doesn't that meets me is like, wow, you're the same that you were on TV. Or I had a coworker who was like, I kind of was worried I was going to watch it and then think you were an asshole. And I think you're so nice and, and all this stuff. And it's like, but no, it was just you, but on TV. So it was like, I did this, right? I gave my marriage everything I possibly could. I consistently tried to be helpful online and use my platform for good. I didn't sell out to brand deals and partnerships that didn't align with who I am and my core belief system and what I do. I did everything I possibly could. And I have conviction, right? So I I do believe in doing the right thing, even when it is hard. And I sat there at the end of the year and I'm like, I don't want this. I don't want any of this. This has cost me everything. This has ruined my life. And now I have no job to even distract me. I have a public divorce. I have a new, newly wonderful, like 15 grand of divorce fees. And, you know, all of this while I don't have a job and like, I, and this isn't for sympathy, but like, this is the reality of it is like, if you don't want to sell your soul for money, which I just can't do, 
like turning down thousands and thousands, probably fifty, sixty thousand dollars that first few months of opportunities to do brands. I just like I, I don't use them. I don't. I'm not interested in head and shoulders. Like I'm not like that kind of stuff. And it's like, wow, I really stay true to myself. And now I've lost everything. And as time went on, and it got more difficult to get a job because it's a question now. You're a public figure. How do you have time for this? Do you want to go on other shows? Like These are all things that I would hear and have to answer to. And so I went through my savings. And that's another thing. Like I saved you know, four months. I had four months in the bank that I could live off of. Then I had to cash out 401k, all this stuff. right? And as I'm going through all of this, and I'm having the time and the space to process the last couple of years, I was literally like, this is so fucked up that I cannot believe that this has ruined my life. When I had my shit together, I was confident and I was happy. I valued my career. I valued my relationship and it was just all gone. And that's when I was like, this is not okay. They didn't. Now I will say there's one person and I'm not going to name this person probably never talked to me again, probably hates me now, which is fine. But like there was one person who on a friend to friend level would check in on me. Doubt she's listening, but if she is, she knows who she is. And you know, I I'm grateful for that, but that was her being a good person, not her doing a job. Right. So I can separate that too, you know, and, and understand that there's a human element to it. And I said, you know, this is not okay. And Jeremy, the co-founder, this was his baby. Like he had this idea at my birthday party in 2022. And I'm like, great. Yeah. I literally said something to him like, yeah, great idea. Never going to work. You're never going to take on these people. They're going to squash you. They're going to squash the organization. And it's not ultimately going to be a waste of time. That was kind of my view. But as I got, you know, processing this, I started thinking to myself, I'm like, you know what? Like, this is just not okay. And somebody has to do something. And I have this, this innate thing inside of me to... I don't want to lead the group project, but if no one's going to step up to lead, I will do it. That's I, It's unfortunate. It's a good trait probably, but it's also very annoying. I will say that reluctant leaders are often the best leaders. Well, <laughs> I'm still reluctant. So <laughs> just this week, I was like, I don't know why I'm doing this. And I really don't know why I'm putting myself through this. And so I decided, you know, I turned down media opportunities. We want to catch up with you, see if you're dating, see how you're doing. I just turned it all down. I'm like, I'm going back to my normal life. Like I've got, you know, followers on social media. I'll post when I want to post. I'll talk to who I want to talk to. I'll do my podcast to do my podcast. And that's it. Okay. And then Business Insider reporter reached out to me over Instagram and was like, I'm doing an expose on what happens to people behind the scenes and post-show on Love is Blind. And I sat there and I'm like, well, okay, I will do this interview. I will make my peace. I will say what I need to say. And then I'll close the door. I don't want to be in this world. I don't want to be in this space. These are not my people. This is not the life I want for myself. But this will be my way of, of giving back. It was probably the week before this article was coming out and they went all out on the expose. Like they sent photographers over to do photo shoots. Jeremy had been setting up the organization, pressuring me to come on, man, come on, be on the board, co-found this thing with me. And I remember I had the conversation. I was walking right outside here with the dog. I gave him a call and I'm like, okay, I'm in, but there's a couple things we have to talk about. Number one, you need to have a like big mental health push here because this has really damaged me. And I know it's damaged people that have 
a lot less resilience than I do. You know what I mean? Like I know I'm resilient and that's my biggest takeaway from this last year is like, I'm a fuck ton more resilient than I ever thought I was or ever thought I could be. And so I told him, I'm like, the other thing is I know that I'm going to have to be the face of this for now, but what I would like to happen is I'll be the face of it, but we've got to take the steps to make sure that I can fade into the background and we let everybody who's impacted because we know how many people it is. It becomes a collective group because change doesn't come from one person. It comes from a bunch of people coming together. And there's going to be a few outs where I, I exit stage left if things go a certain way, you know, because I just didn't want to do this the rest of my life. Like I wanted out of this world. And so then, you know, the onslaught of media came, all of this stuff came. And before I know, I'm like right back into it. I had like interviews for like a month and a half in a row on podcasts and the news foundation starts getting all sorts of people hundred or over probably 200 150 cast members from various shows around the world wow. started reaching out i started having conversations and hearing these stories and i'm like oh my god i'm like i didn't have it that bad you know and so it was it became this piece of me where it's like somebody has to do it I used to say somebody should say something when I was younger. And then I'm like, well, if no one's going to say something, I'm going to say something as I got older. And so, you know, there's patterns of this in my life when I look back on and I'm like, wow, I stood up and took that first bullet and then this changed or I stood up and took that first bullet and then this changed. And so it was kind of like, okay, this isn't going to be about me forever. And it wasn't even about me, but like it wasn't going to have to be me forever. We would free so many people. And then the other I guess this was the third piece I said was, you know, I need mental health support and we need to really evangelize that. Like it's much more relatable than people and lawyers and entertainment lawyers and millions of dollars being talked about by people who are casually talking about millions of dollars. Like we need to do that, but like we need to get the tangible mental health support so that when people are looking for someone like I was and like I know others are, we can provide that for them. We can hook them up with someone that can help them. And so then I said, I... I'm going to use my activism roots, my understandings of unions, and I am going to try and start a union. I'm going to push unionization, and I think that that's going to be the path to uh, success. And starting with that, I got connected with the Teamsters, uh, director at the Teamsters. She's all, now on the board of UCAN. Oh, wow. Yeah, she actually reached out to me, and she's like, hey, me and some of my directors have been talking about someone should do this. And so they partnered with me to help take me through sort of a roadmap of what unionization would look like from a labor perspective, right? And it starts with that contractor employee differentiation, right? So right. I got introduced to the process to like get us legally labeled by the National Labor Relations Board as employees instead of contractors. That investigation's ongoing still to this day. Wow. Uh, so I filed a claim against that at the organization. We've helped several other cast members file those claims because we want to flood the NLRB with all of these true stories from different shows to say, hey, we're all working all this time, making a lot of money, not getting paid right, you know, not following basic labor practices, safety, all that. And so I said, that's what I want to do. Like, I want that. To, my outreach piece is I want to bring cast members together. And then I want to make movements towards film forming a union or been working with SAG after as well, like getting absorbed into SAG. Wow, so yeah. those were like my conditions for starting it. And, you know, that's where we are. And we are 
eight, nine, 10 months now into this. We have four or 500 mental health professionals across the, the world, really, but really in, in this country that have signed up to be part of our network. It's an all-volunteer for the most part at this point. It's all-volunteer staff. We have volunteers that are doing our social media. We have volunteers that are doing the everyday operations all the time spent while we work towards getting our official 5013C and then funding and grants and all of that are underway. And it is it is crazy because we just helped Renee Pochet. She was the one I mentioned earlier on season five mm-hmm. and was cut out completely, spoke about it and got served for $4 million. We hooked her up with an attorney to do the, the countersuing and she shared her story in a collaboration with the foundation on Instagram. And I listened to it before she posted it. She sent it. And I mean, my heart dropped to my stomach. And I was like, this is why you're doing this. Because this poor person would have nowhere to go after being served $4 million lawsuit from a conglomerate production company because she's speaking about her working conditions. And so this is why I'm doing it. You know, so it's like, this is why, because it isn't about me. And yes, it's hard. And there's days like yesterday, the cast being announced, cast members reaching out. It takes me back. I'm like, well, I haven't thought about the day that, that I was announced as a cast and all of the uncertainty and unease about that. And so it, it does. It like keeps me in a spot. But it's like there's light at the end of the tunnel actually helping people. This is why it exists. This is how we're going to pull people together and say enough is enough. We're not participating in the Hunger Games in real life. We're not participating in Gladiator Games. We are human beings. We are not going to be exploited. We're going to be paid. We're going to be treated properly. You're going to give us the experience we deserve for working and making these production companies millions and millions of dollars. So it's happening. We're coming together. It's happening a hell of a lot faster. And there's a few people I could thank for that. There's a that punched down and gave us their extended their platform to us, which was very helpful. And I am very proud. And, you know, it sucks. And some days I really don't want to do it. And I don't, I don't know why I'm doing it. And I need to take breaks from it sometimes, but it's working. And that's a, the long answer of, of the foundation. But I'm also very stubborn. And when I <laughs> feel like I'm doing the right thing, like I dig my feet in and I get stronger. So Cease and desist made me stronger. Seeing the bullshit propaganda stories they get their friends in variety to pump out makes me stronger. Knowing that, you know, they continue to try and and discredit victims makes me stronger. And it makes all of us stronger because I think everyone's had enough. Yeah. I and you are just like, I am so proud. Like I'm like, I know him. Look (laughs) at all this amazing stuff you're doing. You're helping so many people in a very underserved area where there are victims that go back. I mean, you and I were talking and I told you that I was trying to figure out when reality TV even started. And I found instances from the 1940s. Which is just crazy to me. Of people being exploited for these like hidden camera shows and these reality TV shows. We didn't start really calling them reality TV officially, I think, until like the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, it had to be like with Survivor, I would think. Yeah, Survivor and Big Brother, American Idol. That's really when reality TV took off. America's Next Top Model. Yep. Yeah. I know. Tyra had an MLM too. She did? That's a whole nother story. I didn't know that. Yes. It's tragic and messy, but what else would you expect? Wow. Yeah. So it's very interesting. And it's... (laughs) 
it, you know, it's been happening for so long and nobody really talks about it because we're either silenced or we're shamed or any of these things. And so like, I'm just so proud to know that you are out there and you are doing this and you are starting these things to help people and that you've already helped people and that people are already coming to you saying, I've been waiting for somebody to do this. Well, I appreciate that. You get to be that person, which I think is really cool. And yeah, like I said, on season two, like you were one of my favorites. I was like, what is this guy even doing on the show? (laughs) (laughs) I actually hear that from several people. Um, Especially like people in the mental health world are like, how did, why did they think that you were like good? Or some people in like the organizing space were like, how did they not, like, why would they let a lefty organizer on a reality show knowing how they, like stuff like that? It kind of makes me laugh, but it is like, I did try to talk them out of it. I did, I did, but I appreciate that. But it is, it is really, it's like, you know, leadership to me, it's several folds, but the way I do, kind of like I said, like I'll step into it if someone ha- if someone else won't. But I firmly believe in, in leaders are not defined by what they do; they're defined by what they inspire others to do. And I want to inspire others to know and give them the legal <laughs> right to do so with the the NLRB investigating whether or not your employees, which means those NDAs are void, all of the not talking about your workspace or workplace conditions, those are all voided by the government. And, you know, giving people the space so that they can tell their story and they can show that this isn't me complaining, that I'm making sure that the space is opened up for people to be able to share their truth and share what their experience was. And I think that the secondary Freakonomics effect of what you're doing now is shortly in the future. Once these are put into place and people are free and able to tell their stories, We're going to be getting a lot of exposés on these reality TV (laughs) shows and the victims from the past 20, 30 years of the way that they were exploited and harmed. I agree. Yeah. And some of them come on my podcast and share their stories. And I actually had a cast member from 2008 of America's Next Top Model. NDA just expired. 15 years. I want to talk to them. I will hook you up. We're going to do an expose on Tyra Beauty and we (laughs) need to get an America's Next Top Model contestant on here. Yeah. She has some thoughts. Because it comes up so much. People are like, what about Tyra Beauty? And I was like, we have to find, I have the platform and I have some knowledge, but also it's not my story to tell, right? So it's like being able to get victims of these stories to come on and tell their survivor story and give us more context and another puzzle piece to this huge puzzle of, I mean, cultic control, manipulation, high demand control. Yeah. It's happening in so many genres and people are like, how does that have anything to do with this? And I'm like, the way that they control us, the way that they lie to us, the way that they manipulate us, the way that they get us to do what they want. And they they say, well, you signed up for this. What do you mean? Well, right. They make you ask for it. That's what's so crazy. (laughs) Like they make you ask. To be abused. Almost in a lot of cases to be abused with grandeur, but vague promises. I mean, this is not exclusive to reality TV. It's not exclusive to MLM. It's It's everywhere. Like think about like going through the airport, right? Like we had the tragic 9-11 happen to our country, which was such a horrific day. I remember everything about that day, right? But now, like think about the abuse that happens going through the TSA to some people because we've just given up like our rights to the point where it's like we want to strip you down and make sure you're not carrying a bomb and they can do that. 
You know what I mean? It's like, well, but also we're scared. And I get that. Like, I understand being, I don't want to, I don't want that to ever happen again. You know what I mean? Or anything like that to ever happen again. But, you know, they kind of make you condition you to, to want the abuse. Yeah. Fear is a hell of a drug. Like you want clout. Yeah. You want clout. You want fame. And you're not in the talent pool of, you know, scripted shows or you're not in the talent pool of, of being a content creator. You can come on a reality TV show and, you know, sell your soul for a little bit of fame. Wow. And no money. Wow. <laughs> well, I really thank you for helping open up this conversation because reality television has really been a part of our lives pretty consistently especially since like 2000, but even before so. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that people sometimes will strive like, oh my gosh, I'm going to do this. And the stories that I've heard and the things that you've told me, it's just what I've experienced in my whole thing and knowing that it connects, like it's not worth it. And if you can put protections in place to help regulate this, to help keep people a little more protected, have mental health you know, on set, and have regular work hours and make sure that people are getting paid more than less than minimum wage. It's ridiculous. So I'm so stoked to open up this conversation for more conversations like this in the future. I have a couple rapid fire questions that we do at the end of every show. But before we get to that, I want you to let everybody know where they can find you and follow along and how they can support you. Oh, yeah. So I have a lot of places you can <laughs> follow me. Uh, Instagram, it's nthompson513. Uh, you can find me on TikTok, nickthompson513. I don't go on TikTok very often, but you can find me on Instagram. My podcast is called Eyes Wide Open with Nick Thompson, anywhere you listen to podcasts and YouTube, where we talk about cultural issues, mental health, and I have reality TV cast members and hopefully soon some crew members on as guests where kind of really unpack and uncover what's going on there. I've also had one cult survivor, Callie Easel, who I mentioned. I have another one that we've talked, but we haven't scheduled yet, because I think that's something too worth exploring and sharing so that we can go through life with our eyes wide open. And then the UCAN Foundation is UCANFoundation.org. Uh, we are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means everything you would donate is tax deductible. But I understand financial backing is hard, but follow us on Instagram and share our content, spread the word, and make sure you're also watching reality TV with your eyes wide open and realize that uh, you're watching uh, highly edited and in some cases even scripted, but it's a highly edited, highly manipulated watch. So just make sure you're watching that and show some compassion for the people who are who are there. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I've got some questions. Are you ready? Are these fun or are these serious? They're fun and serious. And I'm going to make you answer one about MLM too. So think about your favorite MLM. Okay. Okay. What is one word that encompasses how you feel about reality television? Oh my God. Um, Antiquated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And you're doing the work to make sure it's not. (laughs) Give me a piece of advice to somebody who is listening and wants to apply or be headhunted by a reality television show. It's hard because I, I would say like my advice would be just be yourself. And if it's meant to be, it would be. But I would say like you you really want to you want to show your personality and you want to kind of amp it up, I would say. So if you're if you're a little bit into something or a little bit dramatic, turn the dial up a little bit on your content. Go follow all the casting agents too. Oh my gosh. Or just don't even do it at all. <laughs> Find something else to do. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Yeah. It's 
casting agents have big followings. It's very like, I, I don't know. It's desperate. I not for them, like whatever, like do do you, but like people just following them to try and get recruited. Okay, here's the MLM question. All right. Okay. What is the worst MLM in your opinion? Oh my God. So <laughs> that's a great question. I feel like the one that I had the toughest interaction with was God, what's it, Primerica? Oh, <laughs> Is that uh huh? Where my cousin, who was one of my best friends, and he's he listens to a lot of my stuff, so he might be listening to this. He got into <gasps> it, and I was like, I was young. I, I can't even. I had to be maybe twenty one, and he was like, I'm like, I don't. This does not seem legit. And then there's another one, a cologne one, oh. and I don't know what it was called, but it was a coworker of mine, and he started selling these colognes and recruiting people to sell colognes out of his trunk, and I was like. You know, again, I was like probably 22, 23. And I'm just like, I'm like, Mike, like, I'm not going to buy cologne from you out of your trunk, man. I'm <laughs> certainly not going to sell it out of mine. It's like, it, it was so weird. I'm like, they're like off brand, but it's like, this is actually Tommy Hilfiger. This is actually, it. but it's like not. Right. It was very weird. I don't even know. If, I mean, I guess it's kind of a. There is an MLM <laughs> that does sell perfume, but it might be different now because they love to rebrand and rename themselves and like reformulate okay. and relaunch. But I think it's called FM Sense or FM something. FM World. I don't know, but it's the same. It's like designer imposters out of your trunk. Like, <laughs> if it wasn't, it was probably an offshoot of that. If in one way or another. <laughs> oh man, what was the hardest lesson that you learned being a contestant on reality television? I think the hardest lesson would be the resiliency. I feel like I've been, and I'm not a victim. Like I, I don't think of myself as a victim. I think of myself as. Um, uh, I don't even want to say a survivor, but I, I just, I don't have the victim mentality anymore. I, I used to growing up and it's not a good way to live. So I think just my resilience was, it was hard and I still learn it every day. Like I said, like yesterday was with the new casting and it was one of the weirdest days I've had in a while. I just felt off kind of like a little, almost like, you know, when you have something between your teeth, but you can't see it and you can't <laughs> find it and you start thinking like, is it there? Or is it my imagination? Because I can't get it. Floss isn't helping. A pick isn't helping. And it's just this. Unco- That's kind of how I felt all day yesterday, like in my my gut, right? Like just like something was off. There was a brick there or, or was it? And it was just, it kind of like gets to me in that way still, but I'm, I'm becoming more and more resilient from this. And it's the hardest lesson because there were times I just did not want to I mean, I just didn't want to continue uh, and so many different things. So I think that from like the, the production itself or the experience itself, the biggest lesson I learned similar, I guess, to the last one is it really doesn't matter what other people think or say about you or your experience because they haven't lived it. Even if they've lived something like going through a reality show, they didn't live it in your shoes. So there's a lot of people that like to talk about me, but not talk to me. And I am perfectly annoyed when that happens. But I also realize it's because if they talk to me, they know that they would be probably put in their proper place. And I think for everyone there, no matter if it's on reality TV or if it's in your real life or it's at your work, like people are going to project themselves onto you. 
And I think realizing how many people out there by opening up my life to so many people, how many people out there do that was, um, was a really big, hardest lesson to learn. That was a very relatable answer. I, I yes, I agree with you. <laughs> and then finally, the last question, I like to end it on a positive. Give me a positive takeaway from your time in reality TV. You know, it that kind of goes to with the question of would you do it again in my mind. So it's a similar answer. But I think the biggest positive is that I find a lot of my personal value and satisfaction, as I said, in doing the right thing and helping people. And um, if me going through my experience and my hardships is going to make someone else go through similar things in a better situation, then that will make it all worth it. And that will be a positive thing that comes out of this because it's easy when you're, when you're hurt, it's easy when you're, you're struggling. It's not easy, but it's, it's simpler to just back off, right? Just let it go, move on, do what's best for you. But the biggest part of my healing is forcing change in this industry. And I don't think I will ever be the same. I don't think I'll ever feel the same, but I know that the fight to make sure that these things get better and other people aren't severely damaged is probably the biggest positive out of it. I love hearing that. Yeah. They messed with the wrong person, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I joke like I, I watched The Walking Dead back in the day and there's just this one line and it's like the end of the season four, I think it was. And um, the whole group gets like captured by a bunch of cannibals. And <laughs> the last oh, yeah. lot, did you watch? Terminus. Yeah, it was Terminus. Do oh, you remember yeah. like when Rick was there? He's like, they're fucking with the wrong people. And that's kind of like what yeah. I think. I'm like, they really, they push. You know what? A simple email saying, we're really sorry about your divorce. We're really sorry about your name getting smeared. We're really sorry about you losing your job. And I probably wouldn't be so mad about it. I'm not even mad anymore, but like, you know, I probably would have just felt a little peace there instead of how is my life ruined? They're still making so much money off of me and I don't have anything to show for it. And this is like damaging to so many other people that like don't have a platform. So anyway, yeah, it's, it's crazy, but they did. They, they barked up the wrong tree. They <laughs> tapped into my, I hate giant corporations and I want to, you know, fight the man mentality. <laughs> I love it. I love it. We're right there with you. Thank you so much for coming on and telling your story. This was absolutely lovely, Nick, and I really appreciated it. Thank you for giving me the space to tell the story and be real. Anytime. Thank you so much for listening to Life After MLM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And follow us on social media at Life After MLM Podcast or visit our website at lifeaftermlmpod.com. And don't forget to check out our Patreon for exclusive content and join the community on Discord. You can find all of the links to follow in our show notes. Life After MLM is produced by Roberta Blevins. Audio editing is done by the lovely Kayla Craven. Video editing by the indescribable RK Gold. And Michelle Carpenter is our triple emerald princess of robots. If you have a story about a cult, fraud, scam, or MLM and want to be on the show, please hit us up. We would love to help you tell your story and start your healing journey in life after MLM. See you next time, Hans. Thank you.